Welcome back, friends, to the Mark Claire Show. It's another Monday, and I'm back here in the saddle with another great conversation today with my boy, Jose Galison of No Way Jose, fellow Florida man. Always good to talk to a fellow Florida man. And before we do that, I got to tell you about our fantastic sponsor, Mr. Fox, the fantastic Mr. Fox of Fox and Sons Coffee. How did I never say that before now? He's a fantastic guy, so it makes a lot of sense. Fantastic guy, fantastic company, fantastic beans. Steven actually started this company, well, to relive some memories he had with his father growing up drinking coffee, but also to teach his sons about entrepreneurship. Fantastic package, and I'm so happy to support his company. And he is equally happy, I hope, I suppose, after all these months, he's got to be uh, to support this show as well. So I want you to head over to foxandsons.com, F-O-X-N-S-O-N-S.com. Grab, your, grab yourself a bag, a bag of something. You can get a big bag. You can get a small bag. I recommend a big bag. But if you just want to sample a few different beans, feel free to do that. And I'm going to give you an 18% discount, 18%. I sat in the boardroom and negotiated this one for you guys, all right? 18% off any order over $25 by using discount code MCS. Once you've done that, once you've given it a shot, you're going to want to go back and get yourself a subscription. You get a two-pound bag like this puppy right here for those of you watching on the video, which you can find on YouTube, BitChute, Odyssey, Rockfin. I think that covers about everything. Rumble, there you go. Should be in all those places. See how I interweave the promos? It's because I'm a master, my friends. Uh, but Stephen, Stephen Fox is a master at getting these beans to your house just like that, like clockwork every single month when you grab one of the subscriptions. And right now he's giving $4 off, which is, uh, it's already a crazy deal. Trust me. Now you're getting four bucks off. So head over to foxandsons.com. Support a fantastic sponsor of the show. Again, the fantastic Mr. Fox. You got to support him now. And it's time for my discussion with Jose Galison. With me today, he is uh, he's one of the scoundrels over there at the Tower Gang podcast, uh, as well as the host of his own show, No Way Jose. Very pleased to welcome Jose Galison. Jose, what's up, man? Not much. Glad to be here. I have. Uh, we were just talking before about some big news I had with the show I'm going on tomorrow, but I also have big news with uh, Tower Gang, which I will save that for your smoke-filled room portion, because uh, that's a little bit more like not set in stone, so it's not stuff I want to publicly announce, but I think it's uh, perfectly fitting for your uh, for your smoke-filled room. But uh, yeah, big, big news coming for Tower Gang. Very Hopefully. much sorry. Well, do you so, want to break yeah. the other news then, since we just want to get right to it? Yeah. Yeah, I'm on a, I'm on a tinfoil hat with Sam Tripoli tomorrow. Yeah, I, uh, and he just messaged me. I don't know if he's fucking with me or not, but he's saying Eddie Bravo's joining too, which is random, but I'm here for it. <laughs> All right, well, so, as soon as yeah. you're done with this very podcast, however you're listening, go find Jose here on uh, Sam Tripoli with Eddie Bravo, because that should be a hell of an experience no matter what. <laughs> yeah, that'll be interesting. We'll probably somehow end up on flat earth on the topic of Oklahoma City bombing. I have a feeling we'll... it might come up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Jose, before we uh, dive into what you just mentioned there, we're going to dive into uh, the Oklahoma City bombing, a subject that you've covered a bunch on your show. Um, why don't you just tell little people, little people, tell the little people and the big people alike, <laughs> tell them all yeah. uh, a little bit about yourself and what exactly it is you do there over at No Way Jose. And uh, I guess you can mention the Tower Gang. Because people don't know what the hell you're yeah. doing with that. Uh, I'll tell the uh, Owen Benjamins and the Jose Gallisons in the world, uh, the tall people, short people. Uh, yeah, no, I have the No Way Jose show. I typically cover, I mean, that's really just like my outlet for talking about whatever the hell I want to talk about, really. I don't I don't try to overly define it. I'm glad I wasn't, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe it's a sore spot for you, but I'm glad <laughs> I'm not someone who was one of those ones that are like, I'm the... Liberty Hour or something. I'm sure that's a podcast, and I probably offended them. It probably just, actually, it's, I'm sure it is. There's a liter, there's a Liberty everything, and it's somewhat my fault. But you know, that's but, okay. But 
I guess I just like the idea that I don't, I'm not really too, but generally speaking, that is kind of what I cover. But it, it's really whatever interests me, which tends to be libertarian theory, political analysis. I do a lot of live reading, so there's a lot of like, if you want to follow along, I'm in like part 14 of Democracy the God that Failed, if anyone's interested in that, the other stuff as well. But the thing, like you mentioned, I, I, you know, true, like, I guess you could almost call them like true crime conspiracies or conspiracies that typically have a government angle. I like the woo woo conspiracies, but I don't really cover it in my show because I don't like it like that much. I like it just as more like an entertainment thing something to listen to for fun uh i don't really get like i guess too deep into it in the analysis of that kind of stuff but uh so uh, the biggest thing i've gotten probably known for is the oklahoma city bombing i want to be clear to your audience i'm by no means an expert at all so verify everything i say but i've talked to a lot of experts i you know and i also am a podcaster so i'm able to i feel like do a decent job of taking that and then uh you know uh translating the information but you know verify all my stuff go check out my series go check out the the okc archive the libertarian institute to, it's literally like a Google. You, you can go in there, type in whatever thing you're thinking of. You can verify anything I said, and you can tell me where I was wrong or right or whatever. But uh, you know, primarily, most I've done probably over 15 hours on Oklahoma City bombing. I have a playlist on YouTube for those who are interested. There's a series, and I've done some of like additional content to go with it as well. But uh, the main series was mostly with Richard Booth, who's like basically the crypt keeper of the Oklahoma City archives bombing archives at the Libertarian Institute. Uh, he's kind of uh, taken you know somewhere near like a decade of his you know accumulating uh, documents for the Libertarian for not but, I mean for the Libertarian Institute, but for the Oklahoma bombing, anything related to that, and kind of putting it in one place. I believe it's the largest uh, public uh, archive there is. So yeah, go check that out for sure. Uh, really useful, uh, you know, resource if you're trying to look into this stuff. But, but yeah, uh, definitely if the podcasting is the thing you want to do, if you want to check it out, I highly recommend that series. I think it's probably the best Oklahoma City bombing uh, podcast series you're going to find. Uh, I believe it's eight parts with a bonus part as well. So roughly nine parts and then some additional stuff. So it's a long haul, but there's a lot in there, like a lot, a lot, a lot. Uh, it is a huge, expansive story. I've been saying to, uh, lately that it's almost, I feel like the Oklahoma City bombing is almost like a modern day Rosetta Stone for understanding, uh, you know, conspiracies. Because once you start, there's a lot in there and it, you start to see the playbooks in a lot of different organizations and you can apply that to kind of the things we see today and uh, kind of, you know, I know the deeper I dig down this hole, the more I, I find it to be interesting the uh, idea of you know how reality has been manipulated to give us a perception of things that maybe it's not quite exactly that way you know and then how that affects things over time and you know that's why we have these you know crazy people you know freaking out about right-wing extremism it's like do, do we really have a right-wing extremism pro a problem i think the, the 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 roots from that are kind of from things like the Oklahoma city bombing yeah, it's interesting you call it uh, sort of like a rosetta stone for conspiracies because it, it's one of those things that there's enough sort of public information, enough things that are completely admitted to, completely open, com that people can actually go to and see for themselves, like you said, verify everything you say today. Uh, and you can, it's 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 not so far out there that it's necessarily going to scare your dad away. You know, it's not the moon landing. It's not flat earth. It's not the kind of stuff that you might have to talk about with Eddie Bravo tomorrow. Uh, but it, it is one of those things that it, it can crack an eye open when people can see what, what no matter what conclusion you reach, it, it hard, it's hard to dive into this and not reach a conclusion that something is very, very amiss with the entire situation. Yeah, and it's a good, uh, I feel like it's a good, like, kind of 
it, it kind of subtly brings you into the deep waters of the stuff you're alluding to, the stuff you don't want to tell your your dad about or whatever right off the bat. But once you start slipping in, you start digging it, then you start getting to things like MK Ultra. You, there's even weird remote viewing. There's, uh, you know, you start looking at the CIA connections and that starts painting a very ominous picture of what this may have actually have been. Uh, maybe it wasn't. At the very least, I, I've, I've said many times the Oklahoma City bombing at the very least was like criminal and by federal agencies, but there is also the, a way to look at it. The most generous possible explanation. <laughs> the most generous possible. There is also definitely a way to look at it that, uh, I don't know, did uh, Northwoods really end up sort of happening here? I don't know. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. Uh, there's there's things that suggest that. Uh, there's definitely some stuff that people would you know offhand dismiss as kooky in the Oklahoma City bombing, but there are ways to present this too to your dad to where you're like, you can kind of give him to buy it and be like, hey, Well, my dad listens to the show, so I'm literally, this is literally <laughs> what we're doing today. We're presenting, yeah. we could even title this presenting the Oklahoma City bombing to my dad. Uh, so yeah. um, why don't we just kind of start with maybe some of the basics just um, because... I, I actually vi- pretty vividly remember this. Uh, I was 15. I'm a bit older than you. you I'm guessing mm-hmm. you probably don't really have a memory of it. Uh, what, yeah. seven or eight years younger than me-ish? Yeah. I'm, I'm 42. Yeah, I was like born 91, so... Yeah. Yeah, actually, so I was four. Were- so, yeah, it was four. Yeah, I, It must have been, like, spring break or something like that, because I remember being home and, see- and, like, seeing it on the news pretty much as it happened. And uh, I think it's the first... I, I'm pretty sure the first World Trade Center bombing was before that, but it... That was just like, oh, there was a bomb that went off and it didn't feel like there was a lot of casualties that died. That's the first time I remember seeing on TV, like, real people die. I'm not putting in quotes because I'm not saying they're real, by the way. Uh, for anybody watching the video, real people dying on TV in a way that that felt really, like, tragic and scary and confusing. And it's the first time I started to think a little bit about, like, wh- what does this mean? Like, what what is going on here? Um, so I'm curious, I obviously you don't have memories of it, but maybe just try to start at, at the beginning of what you've found and what, what the, I guess maybe you can start with more of what the official story is, and then we can maybe try to find where the cracks are. Yeah. Uh, well, the official story is that on, uh, April 19th, 1995, I want to say it was like nine ish. It might be a little bit off on the time, but it was early morning hours. Uh, there, you know, uh, Timothy McVeigh, this is the official narrative. Timothy McVeigh pulled up to the, the Murrah, uh, federal building in Oklahoma city and in a r- big old yellow rider truck, uh, he walked out and, you know, kind of, you know, to get away and then boom, exploded, and roughly around 170 people died. Now, like I said, that's just, that's the official narrative, roughly. Uh, and, I mean, that's, they later, we can go kind of like what the official narrative is so far as what McVeigh was. They, the the term that we hear a lot, like the lone wolf, that is like uh, kind of colloquialized by uh, the whole McVeigh phenomenon, because they, they would re- typically refer to him as like a lone wolf thing. Like he kind of was acting alone. Technically people will kind of pull like a, well actually for you when you say that, because it is part of the official narrative that Terry Nichols did help him. But when people are saying lone wolf, they mean like actually physically doing like carrying out the act. Terry Nichols had an alibi. He was not uh, there at the Oklahoma city at the time of the bombing. He did absolutely help. He did provide like kind of support, play a supportive role with like accumulating parts and different, different ends and ins and outs. Uh, so he did help. But when people say lone wolf, they mean like literally did it like he supposedly drove up and did it. Uh, and it, you know, it was supposedly a, you know, a result of him being disillusioned with the government from his time when he was in the Gulf war. And then subsequently, you know, 
know, got out, kind of saw, you know, kind of what the country was coming to, saw Waco, saw things like that, and kind of became radicalized against the government. And uh, the way they typically portrayed it is that he saw it as like a war and the idea that you you took some of ours. And so, and this is a federal building. So in his sense, you know, kind of law of war type thing, this is perfectly legitimate, you know, uh, military target, despite the fact there are civilians there. And yeah, that's roughly kind of the uh, the general official narrative of what we're talking about with Oklahoma City bombing. Yeah, and there is like he he had written some letters or something like that. There is like a Timothy McVeigh manifesto. Uh, I read some version of it that was put up by Gore Vidal in like the '90s, and I remember reading that. And he does sort of list like you know Ruby Ridge, Waco. He lists a, a series of grievances and. I mean, in some ways, kind of accurately describes a lot of the state of the government at the time. Um, so there's definitely that that narrative, in, in a sense, does seem to add up. He does seem to legitimately perhaps have these grievances against the U.S. government, seemingly was absolutely involved in this attack. Um, but but then, so there's obviously a lot more to it, uh, as there always is with this stuff. So maybe we can just start by focusing in on McVeigh a little bit more. Like, do you see his story as it's laid out as legitimate and in sense of just his own grievances? Um, do you think he was truly an active participant just as the, as the you know story entails, or is there you know, like maybe another angle to him that we're not looking at? Uh, well, first off, you, you, you mentioned that, you know, can you read the letter? I want to be clear. People will frequently bring up, you know, McVeigh said this, McVeigh said that. No, I'm not saying you're doing that or anything, but they will point to this letter or that statement to this person, that person. McVeigh's story changed like a bajillion times in a bajillion different ways. So you have to parse out everything he said with who did he say it to, at what time did he say it, what was the context, et cetera, et cetera. And so really when it comes to McVeigh, to a lot of ways, it kind, in many ways it is kind of like a pick your own story. The biggest divergence in a pick-your-own-story of McVeigh would be uh, when he went to special forces shortly after uh, his time in Gulf War. When he got the Gulf War, he went to go to special forces tryout. And according to him, and he said this to multiple people, he said it to his uh, uh, some of his defense attorneys, I think, what it was, I think it was his first defense attorneys, he said it to his sister in a letter. He essentially said that to, to some people, certain people, that what really happened is instead of failing out of the you know special forces as what was the you know the official narrative and what he also told other people uh is he actually was pulled aside and him and something like ten, uh, you know 10 or so other people were pulled aside and said hey uh we want you to be part of a covert unit of some sort uh, do different jobs things like drug interdiction like smuggling uh even said things along the lines of like possible assassinations uh stuff like that uh and these this is what he told his sister so, and he, he said it to other people at other times, and uh, this letter, I believe, was actually two years prior to the bombing, so there's a, it wasn't even like a, I mean, I don't know, I guess, to, you know, I don't know, you can kind of interpret that different ways depending on the timing of it. I don't know. I, I don't necessarily lean hard in one way or the other. To be, to be clear, though, so that people know the official story is he failed out of uh, special forces within like a couple days. Uh, you know, from his time in the Gulf War, apparently he, because uh, he essentially went straight from the Gulf War to special force training. He, I guess it kind of messed up his feet a little bit, which sounds silly, but anyone knows like special forces training, you do a lot of rucking, a lot of moving around. If you have any issues with your feet, that is going to be a problem. So it is legit. I don't even it know what rucking legit. is, but it sounds really yeah. fucking hard. So it's, it's carrying like <laughs> 40 to 100 pounds on your back and you know hauling for you know miles and miles and miles and miles that's it that's a pretty common thing they do in a lot of special forces training um so you know uh, a lot of i don't know anyone's been uh, you know any time running special force guys know that's like pretty much one of the staples of it is the rucking uh 
but yes, that's uh, that is you know where there is one major divergence in uh, in which which way uh, you want to believe with McVeigh. Uh, in a sense, I feel like it sort of makes little difference. Obviously, if you can prove that he was a government agent, it does make a big difference. But so far as like the bombing, whether he did it or not, I don't think it makes much difference. I do think the evidence is pretty clear. It seems he. He almost certainly was, uh, you know, the main individual. He was ID'd by a ton of eyewitnesses. Uh, so I, I do think he is legit one of the people. But now what story that paints, that paints a different story. Uh, I do think even if he wasn't a special forces, you know, uh, you know, like, or he wasn't off in some sort of black ops type unit or some shit, I still think there is a, I still think he was manipulated by feds at the very least. Uh, now you can still have the government did it scenario and him not being a government agent. Cause there are other individuals in this plot that fill the role just fine of government provocateurs. And the term agent could have <laughs> levels of meaning too. Cause you could be yes. it. You could be an agent and not kind of be a witting agent as well. You could just be someone yep. who's who's manipulated. You could even have legitimate grievances and just be a un, unwitting dupe in the whole. Yes, exactly. So I don't, I don't think it makes. I mean, obviously, is like interesting, but I, in a certain sense, it almost makes little difference to me which way because it's like in the, it really is all we have to go for go on because all conveniently all the military records seem to disappear, uh, or at least most of them. So a lot of stuff that could actually back up one way or the other is kind of absent. So really, it does pretty even much even the just record come that to, would show the true story, the official story that he would they dropped out is, is kind of unavailable. Uh, I think a lot of the if I remember, I actually was just reading the chapter in uh, Aberration in the Heartland a reel that was covering a lot of that today and if i remember correctly that there there i mean there may have been some sparse documents here and there because there was a whole snafu between they were debating what day uh, uh, they actually dropped out special forces because it kind of makes a difference uh depending on you know because uh, the official story was that he was there for two days and then failed out and left but then there seems to be some evidence that points towards maybe it was five which you know obviously would lend a little bit more credence to the fact that some more you know fishy stuff was going on. I don't know. Uh, you kind of get in the weeds when you start getting into the minutia of stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, it, there's definitely a lot of weird stuff going on there for sure. I suppose you could imagine a scenario where there's a Timothy McVeigh that is is playing the role he's supposed to play, even maybe even stating the grievances, or if that's even him writing certain letters. I mean, who, who even knows? Um, playing the part, and then a, a McVeigh that is realized that he's fucked and is like saying, oh, no, wait, no, hold on. They pulled me aside. I'm part of this unit, like, and then starting to tell the truth to try to get another angle out of it. Yeah, yeah, there is definitely something there. I, 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 because there is actually also in that one of the letters, uh, the one that because there's multiple letters for his sister. There was something along the lines of that he made it sound like he kind of tried to drop out, like essentially not because uh, I, I mean, I kind of almost want to gra- walk across the, there and grab the book to know for certain because I have it bookmarked, but. Um, it was something along the lines of, uh, God, I completely brain fart. What the fuck was I just talking about? Completely zoned out. Cause I got sidetracked in that. Um, back. no, what was the question again? I totally zoned out. What oh, was we, don't, the we don't have questions here. We just, fuck, we, you we threw me off. We, you don't remember <laughs> the question. <laughs> oh, shit. It's, uh, a, it's right. one long question. Tell me everything about, about OKC. Yeah, um, yeah. No, we were we were talking about uh, McVeigh and whether he he could have been like not telling the like yeah. not telling the truth at first or telling the truth at first in terms of playing the story he was supposed to tell, but then sort of you know yep. saying bringing up the special forces thing and trying to sort of 
Like I remember terrible. exactly what I was going to say. No, I was going to say that the there was a contention about, or not contention, there was one of the letters to his sister he was talking about that essentially he decided he didn't want to follow through with the mission because there was, I think, something there along the lines of they want him to perpetrate some sort of attack or 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 essentially pull off a sting because that's something people say is a sting that went wrong. Um, and he, you know, there's this whole thing about how he essentially didn't want to do it and he was going to go on the run and all this. And, uh, obviously he ended up doing it. I think there may be, you know, it's kind of hard to read exactly what happened because a lot of this is just, you know, interpreted through letters during that period of time. Uh, not a ton of solid evidence, but yeah, there, I also think maybe there is some component of, uh, maybe sounds a little bit crazy. There's not a ton to, uh, you know, a conjecture on this, but I think there may be some MK Ultra th- stuff going on because uh, it was recently confirmed. I don't know the specifics on it, but really, uh, you know, really legitimate researcher Wendy Painting uh, recently came out with information. I don't remember the specifics, so go look into that, check it out on how she confirmed this. Uh, but apparently, um, Jolly West had met with Timothy McVeigh. Now, prior to this information coming out from her, we already knew that Mc- uh, Jolly West was essentially on the case, if you will. You kind of, but he he wasn't known to have interacted directly with McVeigh. He was on board uh, kind of helping out uh, victims with, uh, you know, kind of trauma uh, therapy or something, which uh, I'm assuming you're familiar with Jolly West, the uh, MK Ultra he's guy. He's one of these like MK Ultra psychiatrists yeah, that conveniently he, shows yeah. up at, you know, yes. all the places you like, expect him to. He, he's like the MK Ultra guy. Uh, so, uh, but, bef- and even then, like, you know, prior to knowing he met directly with McVeigh, we already knew his protege, John Smith, uh, who's another MK Ultra doctor had already met with McVeigh. So now we know for a mm-hmm. fact he's met with John Smith, uh, Jolly West's, uh, um, you know, protege, and also Jolly West himself. Uh, so now it makes you wonder, uh, especially if anyone who's looked into MK Ultra and kind of what the goals of MK Ultra were. One of the big ones were creating split personalities. Mm. Um, so, so both versions of him could be telling the truth. In, yes, in a they sense, could both exist. Case, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. That is that is a lot. Really, a lot of conjecture in that one. Uh, the only things we have to really go on that is the fact that Jolly West and his uh, his dude were there. But that is a big one because anyone who's Jolly West, it's. It's very fishy that he would show up to just, you know, as, even with the earlier story that was confirmed of it was a, that he hadn't met with McVeigh, but he was interacting with the, the victims of the bombing uh, for to help with their trauma. It already is like his whole point of MKUltra was manipulating trauma to their benefit. So uh, I don't know. What did they did with that? I, I can only conjecture. I have no idea. But it seems really odd. The guy who specializes in manipulating and trauma shows up to talk to a bunch of people who experience a lot of trauma. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, something there. I don't know. Something to ponder. Because, I mean, the, it, if you're trying to uh, understand the actions of McVeigh, that could totally play into it. Because maybe he did try to run away or something and... I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I have no idea. You know, how the the intricacies of how MK Ultra would work in a in the nineties. You know, because uh, go ahead. No, I was just say yeah. Let, let's dig into s- some more of these aspects because I one thing I do remember uh, pretty vividly as well from the early days was this talk of this John Doe number two, and they even had you know the drawings of him and everything. And I remember at one point they were even trying to suggest he might have been an Iraqi guy because it's not that long after the the Gulf War. Uh, and then suddenly <laughs> that just that just went away. So is there anything to John Doe number two? And if so, do you think that it went away suddenly for a reason? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, the you know, like we mentioned before, the uh, Oklahoma City bombing happened April nineteenth. Uh, by May, there were already internal FBI memos where they were essentially telling them to put all leads into abeyance, which is a fancy law enforcement term for don't don't pursue these leads. Essentially, uh, and then May, June, and then June, the official story of the FBI became that uh, John Doe two was imagined. Uh, meanwhile. Uh, every single person that they talked to that, that saw McVeigh saw him with another person that day. Uh, there were, I believe, 22, I know it was over 20, uh, 20 eyewitnesses who saw him with another person. I, be- I If I remember correctly, there was one that the feds ended up getting to use for some part of their trial that said, that initially it said he saw both and later said he only saw one. So, But none of the other people who saw both uh, seem to get called to stand at all, which is, you know, I don't know, that's convenient. Uh, but yeah, so there's definitely a lot to the John Doe 2. Uh, it's my suspicion it's likely was either a Fed, an informant, or someone that for whatever reason the Feds did not want pursued, whether they, he had information that may make them look bad, I don't know. Now, so far as the Middle Eastern stuff, uh, yes, it, it was. Um, if you look at the eyewitness reports and their descriptions of him, they did describe him. Uh, I typically refer to him as like a, uh, ethnically ambiguous so, and there were some weird eyewitness reports about like uh, the they're essentially being hajis of some sort, you know, Middle Easterns. Um, the I did find it. Uh, I, I was recently just looking through the FOIAs, uh, a lot of the for, uh, Freedom of Information Act requests that came out of this, uh, all the Oklahoma City bombing stuff, and I found I came across one that was about a remote viewing one, and it was a memo from the CIA, which I, it was like shortly after the bombing or, some, or something along those lines. I forget that they, uh, or maybe it was supposed to be prior. I forget the specifics of it. I'm just bringing it up because it's just funny. The remote uh, viewing it, is one of those ones that I I always want to shelve it in like that. That's just too weird and probably not true. Kevin. Category, but then it always keeps coming up in actual CIA documents. So then you're like, well, what? So are they just fu- being fucking around? Or like, because if they're saying it, then someone must think it's a real thing. Or are the documents just, you know, these are the kind of thoughts that we go through. My thoughts is, I don't know. I typically lean towards remote viewing is probably not real. But even if it is real, now, like I was saying with these FOIAs, this came from the CIA. These were CIA memos from their remote viewers. So, and immediately it came out, it was like some Middle Easterns and some, some of our favorites, Palestinians, Israelis, Saudis. So, not Israelis, obviously they wouldn't put any blame on them. But, uh, you know, uh, Palestinians, Iranians, Saudis, I forget which which group they were uh, conjecturing it was. But essentially it was remote viewer going, nah, 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 this is what I think I see. It's the CIA remote viewer. And that's what mm, one okay. of the first pieces of information that come out. I don't know, that reads to me like maybe Middle Easterner was the initial... Like, oh, this is maybe what we're going with. And, and maybe get that the remote viewing through. guy to t- <laughs> tell him it was some Middle Eastern looking guys. Exactly. Uh, I, uh, I don't, uh, when it's conveniently the narratives they want to push. Uh, I mean, some people conjecture that this may have been their attempt to like kick off the terror wars early, and then maybe the narrative kind of fell apart, and they you know scrapped together the the the, the white supremacist narrative. Or maybe they or didn't the, know they uh, had one of each. Narrative. They had Timothy McVeigh, <laughs> they had the Middle Eastern John Doe, and are like, Let, we'll figure it out later. We'll just blame one. Yeah, and it also could just be a matter of agencies not talking to each other. And then even with this, you know, they went with this or went with that. This doesn't even presuppose they did it, to be clear, because a lot of people may be like, oh, it'd be being conspiratorial. This could be it completely happened, and they just go through the Rolodexes of like, well, who do we blame this on? <laughs> what, what do we need to blame this on right now? Who knows? I don't know how this works. Uh, but point being is that, that I'm not as, by saying that, you're not asserting that they actually did it. Although I think there is a, 
Uh, I don't know. There's, you know, legitimate speculation to be had that they possibly did do it. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if you have anything more on that. Uh, I think I kind of addressed what we were just talking about. But yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, I, and now I, I want to kind of look at a couple of these because there's a lot of stuff we can dig into on the, the bombing on the day itself that maybe we'll circle back to. But I think some of the strangest aspects of this case are can be looked at through the cases of two of the uh, two two other people, uh, Kenneth Trenadu and Terrence Yeagy, someone whose name you got to bring up on Timcast in front of hundreds of thousands of people. The Terrence Yeagy didn't kill himself shirt. So maybe you can maybe start with whichever one you think is, uh, you know, the, I don't know. They're both important, obviously, but whichever one you think is maybe more relevant to just show us that there's obviously I mean, when you follow some of these trails, you start to say, OK, Besides the bombing itself, this is like, okay, something is major is going on here. Yeah, uh, let's. I'll, I'll start with Terrence because I, I think, because uh, we're kind of at this spot right now where, in our, where we're talking kind of like, you know, what happened. And I think there's a good, uh, you know, a good way to at- attack this, uh, this Yiki story and kind of get at, you know, what may have gone on in this realm. And then, and Kenneth, I think it does a better job of getting more into like the Fed corruption. So, yeah, uh, Terrence Yiki. He was a cop. He was one of the first responders to the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, he, uh, I've many reports say he was the first. I think he was probably the first from many of the accounts I've heard. But I always say one of because I don't, I don't know if he was literally the first or one of the first few. But he was, you know, I doing some sort of traffic ticket. You know, very close by. Heard the boom. Immediately came running. Was one of the first people saving people. Uh, saved over three lives. Uh, became injured himself in the process. I think he was kind of carrying a big dude. Fell through some, a couple floors. Uh, hurt his back. Um, his ex-wife, uh, at the time, uh, you know, she came to pick him up. Uh, the, the first thing she said, he said to her was Tanya, it's not what they're saying. They're not telling the truth. She's actually done a radio interview for people. Uh, Tanya, uh, Yiki, uh, that's who she is. That was his ex-wife. They, they were kind of in a spot at that time and they seemed to be rekindling things because a lot of the uh, stuff about, cause we'll kind of get to that, you know, he, this guy, you know, spoiler alert, he ends up dying. They blame it on suicide. And one of the main points I, you know, I'm mentioning about Tanya uh, that they try to lean on was the fact that you know try to make it out like there were family problems when in reality it looked like they were actually rekindling things in a great spot at the time. But anyways, um, you know, she picked him up from the uh, picked him up from the hospital. He said that. Uh, you know, according to her, with tears like tears in his eyes, said Tony, "It's not what they're telling you, telling uh, not what they're saying. It is they're not telling the truth. They're lying about what's going on down there." Um, you know, like I said, he ends up dying. Roughly a year later, his body was found in a field uh, near El Reno. Uh, his wrists and throat were cut. Uh, there was grass and dirt in the wounds. Uh, there was what looked like uh, rope burns and cuff bruises on his feet and wrists. And a bullet had gone through his head uh, at a uh, at the coming from the back of the head. Well, more of like an angle, kind of like the the uh, I don't know if it was left or right, but we'll go with left for the sake of convenience. But kind of like top left angle coming down, kind of like in his like front right lower jaw. It would be a good way to put it, or vice versa. You know, for sides, I forget which side it came from. But point being, so people can understand the trajectory. Um, and he was about, his body was found a, you know, roughly a mile. The lowest estimates I've heard is half mile. The highest I've heard is a mile and a half. Uh, his, he was found from his car, which was covered in blood. Uh, and this was ruled a suicide almost immediately. So here we have a dude who uh, has extensive damage to his body. Uh, the key point being the car, which is about roughly a mile away with all the blood. So it, you know, obviously he had to get from one point to another. Um, you know, this guy was also sickle cell anemic. So... 
you know, the fact that he would do, and, you know, according to the reports, it was like covered in blood. He, and when they found the body, he had lost over two pints of blood. So he had done extensive damage in the car. And so we're to believe that he did all this damage to himself, uh, walked, uh, you know, half Dragged mile, himself mile and a half of the desert. <laughs> yeah. And there have been people who have, you know, uh, look, looked, uh, you know, have went down the path and they say it's very, uh, very, you know, like creeks, fences, you know, very, a lo- lot of, you know, uh, obstacles in the way. And Even if you like, were going to kill yourself in some weird, gruesome way where you also tied your own wrists behind your back and w- why would you also drag yourself, put yourself through the torture of, you know, being out in the desert on top of it? Yeah, no, for sure. It makes no sense. Uh, th- there was also no t- autopsy performed. There was no suicide note. Uh, I don't believe we ever got any details about ballistics. There was if no there autopsy. Any- so who declared it a suicide? They, the Was it the local police or? Uh, there was the police when they got there. The, the funny thing is, uh, he's, that body was actually discovered by the Canadian city, uh, or Canadian county uh, uh, police department, which was essentially right next to the Oklahoma City Police Department, which was the department Terrence worked for. Uh, weirdly, um, you know they, you know they didn't rule it a suicide. Uh, the Canadian county, but shortly after, you know, not too long, not too much longer after, the uh, the uh, OCPD, the Oklahoma City Police Department, took over. Uh, for the uh, for the Canadian County, uh, I've heard people explain this before. That's not uncommon for larger departments take over for smaller departments. For the you know logic of uh, the oh, for a routine suicide. I mean. Yeah, for for better resources and such. And I, I can understand why the Canadian County would let them too, because they'd be like, oh, that's your your guy, your cop. You probably want to make take care of this if you can. Uh, but they ruled it suicide. Another fun fact: the gun wasn't found until the until the OCPD took over the crime scene. Which, if you shot yourself in the head, uh, and, Sh- you know, shouldn't all, have gone far, right? Unless you have some crazy spastic, you know, from I don't know, which would make sense, I guess, from getting shot in the head, you might have some muscle spasms. Even then, what are you, well, the first you're gonna be able to throw it is like ten feet from some sort of muscle spasm. So they would have found it. Apparently, they combed the area and didn't find it. And it wasn't until the OCPD took over jurisdiction that lo and behold, they found a gun. But like I said, we never got any ballistics on the gun. We don't know the specifics on whose gun or what gun it was, whose it was, which you would think if it was Terrence's gun, we would know this because, uh, which brings up another key point. He, there was an individual named Ramona McDonald who he talked to, who he, uh, she made the claim that he told her he made the choice not to bring his his service weapon. Uh, and you know, kind of obviously the logic being, uh, they were worried about him suicide because he had talked to this Ramona character about that. He was going to have to going to go meet with a couple suits types, you know, uh, a couple official looking types, uh, essentially bringing some of the, uh, stuff he'd accumulated because apparently he had been looking for people to talk to about this. Keep in mind, this is the mid nineties. He wasn't able to start a podcast right. and tell the world. <laughs> if only he had, <laughs> only waited a decade, he could have just had a blog and then later in the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And so he, uh, he, to him, this was his big chance. He just, uh, clearly thought these were some sort of three letter agency types that maybe in get to, but he also wasn't completely stupid and, you know, obviously didn't bring his gun with him, you know, likely concerned that if they were going to do something that they would do it with his own weapon. Cause that would make sense. Uh, he didn't bring it and, you know, still ended up dead. The ballistic, like I said, the, the, we never found out about the gun, the ballistics, any of that. So that would track with, you know, maybe not being his gun. Cause you'd think we'd know that. Um, and obviously then the question goes like, what, why did he get killed? What did he possibly know? What are, what are they covering up? Um, you know, we, like I alluded to before, kind of a sting gone wrong. Uh, that could be possibility. 
Um, you know, the, in that, the, the Ramona character I talked to earlier, one of the, you know, many, uh, probably one of the better resources people refer to frequently is a letter from Terry to this character, Ramona, uh, which I believe if I remember correctly, this was, uh, you know, something that was gotten from the family later. So that's how you can, you know, kind of, you know, determine how well, well you want to trust this source or not. Um, and I'll go ahead and read a small portion. Dear Ramona, I hope that whatever you hear now in the future will not change your opinions about myself or others with uh, the Oklahoma City Police Department. Although some of the things I'm about to tell you about is very disturbing. I don't know if you recall everything that happened that morning or not, so I'm not sure if you know what I'm referring to. The man that you and I were talking about the pictures I have made the mistake of asking too many questions as to his role in the bombing and was told to back off. I was told by several officers he was an ATF agent who was overseeing the bombing plot, and the time the photos were taken, he was just calling his report of what he had just went down. I think my days as a police officer are numbered because of the way my supervisor are acting, and there is a lot of secrets floating around about my, now about my mental state of mind. I think they're going to write me up because of my ex-wife and a VPO. And so, you know, obviously it's kind of alluding to in that little portion that he uh, seems that maybe he thinks there's more going on here. Maybe he saw something. He said he had seen this individual named Lucas Franey, who was an ATF agent. And it seems, obviously we don't know, he didn't spell it out specifically exactly, but there, there's something going on there. Uh, there's also reports from his sister, LaShawn Hargrove, that said uh, she had talked to Terry before, Terrence, and he had said things about how he saw evidence of uh, what looked like explosives blowing out as opposed to blowing in because it was a, as I said earlier, there was a truck bomb, uh, and if this truck bomb had got parked next to the building, if it blew up, it would blow things in towards the building, and uh, according to LaShawn, the, she, he, he seemed to have seen, thing, uh, seen things that made it look like uh, there were actually some sort of force pushing outwards. Indicating that there could have potentially been either maybe another bomb already in the building. Because yes. weren't there, am I, weren't there some initial reports, and I think this stuff is always chalked up to like the confusion or the chaos of the day, uh, of people finding other bombs and, and things like that, and the initial sort of like police scans? Or my thickness. Yeah, no, there was uh, it, the rescue efforts. Uh, efforts were called off multiple times that day for bomb scares. Right, right, right. Uh, so there were multiple reports of seeing bombs. Uh, it's kind of hazy what the actual what actually really happened. Some people will say, "Oh, they just were misidentified some things or whatever." There are actual photos uh, of the ATF bomb squads, uh, you know, uh, taking boxes out and stuff. Uh, you know, uh, there's a picture said a box containing an unarmed tow missile, anti-tech weapon, uh, a tank weapon, and other stuff. Um, so many people presume that uh, this could be, you know, on the on the easier way, on the lighter on the ears way of explaining this phenomenon, is the, there was what seemed to be there the the you know reports of that the ATF may have been storing uh, explosive munitions improperly in this federal building. This federal building that had a daycare in it, had a social security office in it, had like military recruiters, had other stuff in it as well. Uh, but this is a spot where apparently they decided to store. Uh, explosive equipment there and so one of two things could have happened maybe he had seen unexploded ordnance or uh you know yiki had seen unexploded ordnance of it or he had seen you know evidence of it actually blowing out uh this also could they could have also not have gone off and that's where the bomb scares came from and they got them all out um but so that's one way to explain uh, possible, uh, you know, other explosions or just the bomb scares. Uh, it could have been that some of those munitions got exploded and obviously maybe they're not fessing up to it or they didn't get exploded and those bomb scares were simply just due to whatever 
thing that they thought may have looked like a bomb. I mean, they still could have been storing stuff improperly and none of it went off. Uh, but point being is uh, that's you know one way to explain some of this. Um, there also, on the other hand, there were reports of what looked like... Um, um, how do I say this? There, there were two individuals, Ruschab and Jane Graham, who have a report that sounds like they may have seen people that were hooking up explosive. The way they saw it looked like that they had people that were planning, you know, wiring, thin wiring, and other little things up to columns and stuff in the parking garage. So that would lend lend itself to maybe someone was planting explosives. Um, uh, you know, that would be on the other end of you know uh, of the po- range of possibilities. Assembly would be more in the, planted more on the myhop side, the make it happen more yes. so than the let it happen. Yep, yep. And one of those individuals too, I forget which one of those, Ruth or those Jane. Later on, uh, I believe it was on an Alex Jones show. Actually, she said she identified one of the individuals as Strassmeyer. I know a lot of people, um, you know, some people poo poo at that. I don't know. I don't really have a strong opinion one or the other because that was the only time her story changed when she went on Alex Jones. I don't know. It doesn't really matter either way. But either way, it's a it's interesting. She did even you know brought up the name of Strassmeyer in regards to it because he's another individual that you know kind of like I was saying earlier with McVeigh, like whether he was a glowy or not. There were other glowies that were doing glowy stuff, and Strassmeyer was one of them. Uh, I mean, I guess we can you know you know uh, jump on Strassmeyer if you want, but yeah, I, I guess I was jumping from one topic to the other, and so I don't know if there's more you want to talk about Yiki. No, you can you can dive into Strassmeyer. Yeah, Strassmeyer, Strassmeyer. That is a interesting fellow. Uh, Strassmeyer was a German national. Um, oh boy. He, yeah, he came over. These guys are always popping back up. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He uh, he was a German national. He was the son of like a high-powered politician. He was in the German military. He was in a counter-recon or counter-intel in in there. Uh, he also did a little stint where he seemed looked like it was maybe like a cross-training thing with the IDF, you know, the Israeli Defense Force. So he was kind of doing patrols with them for a while over there in Israel. Uh, and then he came over to – I'm talking on my ass a little bit. But I want to say it was around like 93. Maybe it was earlier. But it was before, well before the bombing, a good you know, years before the bombing he came over. Uh, and one of the first people he stayed with was this individual named Vincent Petruski. Uh, who has is heavily alluded that he was a CIA agent at one point and he was part of Operation Phoenix, which that was essentially Operation Northwoods carried out in Vietnam uh, during that kind of era when we were you know fucking around in Vietnam. Uh, so that was the first guy he stayed with in the States was this Vincent Petrusky guy. Uh, probably the only other interesting thing about Vincent Petrusky that's merited bringing up now is the fact that... Um, with Vincent, uh, apparently there was talks that he was trying to hook up. Uh, uh, he was essentially assisting Andreas Strassmeyer with you know making packages for different federal agencies to you know for work essentially. Uh, so that was something that came out there. Now, obviously, you know who did he end up working for? What did he end up doing later? I don't know. Uh, he ends up moving to Texas shortly later. Lives with this individual named David Holloway who is another, uh, he was a, essentially a CIA pilot. He was like a cutout with a, maybe it was like Evergreen. I forget what specific cutout it was, but one of those ones that's, a, yeah, he's a CIA agent. Like, let's be real. Like, that's what he is. <laughs> um, and he, um, 
you know, he lived with him for a while over in Texas and he, uh, David Holloway, just was, roommates, you know, I'm sure. Yeah. David Holloway was, uh, in the, you know, had essentially started the Texas light infantry or was running it at that time, brought me, uh, you know, Strassmeyer over there to be a part of that infantry or not infantry, but that, uh, militia, um, it wasn't too much longer. Strassmeyer got booted out of that militia cause they suspected of being a provocateur cause they, apparently some of the individuals got a little bit, uh, were a little suspicious of him. And so some individuals followed him after, after, you know, kind of at the end of the day and they saw him going to a federal uh, building at night and using the key code to get in. And that's when they're like, no, you can get out. <laughs> and so that's when they kicked him out. Uh, keep in mind, this was the militia being run by his buddy, David Holloway, who was a former CIA agent. Um, and then he ends up showing up in Elohim City, which is kind of where this comes back full circle, which was kind of this like, uh, you know, hodgepodge of weird religious kooks, white supremacists, kind of some right wing folks, but generally kind of known as being a seedy, uh, you know, kind of white power movement area. Um, and that's where Strassmeyer ended up at uh, with those individuals there. Uh, you know, all during this time where he's... Uh, it's funny in, how or, these things just all happen to overlap. <laughs> Yeah, and he uh, he he was receiving also during that time a two thousand dollar a month stipend from this Holloway character the whole time he's here, um, which if I remember correctly, I believe it was for, you know under the roommates got to help each other out. It totally, yeah, totally lines was, up. I think it was on the auspices of like a, some sort of computer job or some shit, which he obviously wasn't doing, but uh, you know just kind of an excuse to give him money. Um, and so yeah, that's when he ends up in Elohim City, uh, and he runs into McVeigh multiple times. He only ever cops up to one meeting with McVeigh, although McVeigh is associated with a bunch of other people that uh, you know that you know are in groups that uh, Strassmeyer is associated with. Uh, they actually. <laughs> Uh, I believe one of the times they interviewed uh, Strassmeyer, he literally had McVeigh's BDUs hanging up in his, uh, which is like his military uniform, hanging up in his closet. And he claimed that was from the one time he met him at a uh, <laughs> at a at a gun show. And I guess kind of bought him off him, thought that was cool. Uh, he gave Trading him his clothes, card. Yeah. For- yeah, he gave him the card for Elohim City because uh, if I remember correctly, I believe that part of how that came out is probably Strassmeyer trying to justify that uh, that McVeigh was on record calling over uh, at one point to to the uh, you know in the rough you know time very close to the time of the bombing, whether it was before or after, I can't recall, uh, calling over to Elohim City looking for Andreas Strassmeyer. So it's like, how do you explain this guy calling over for you have your BDUs? Oh, we just met that one time. Uh, but there's also other there's multiple. Uh, people have seen him. There was an individual who was a, a whistleblower for PatCon, John Matthews, who claimed he saw McVeigh and Strassmeyer together at a separate occasion, um, um, which PatCon was in, like an FBI op. Uh, many people think it's associated with Oklahoma City bombing. Um, he also, there's also the Godivas, 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 whatever, the, uh, the essentially strip club that him, uh, McVeigh, and Strassmeyer was spotted at, and another individual named Michael Brescia. Uh, they were spotted there uh, about roughly, I want to say it was like two weeks before the bombing. Uh, there's a, this is actually- Why do they like, always go to strip clubs before the terrorist <laughs> attacks? The 9-11 yeah. guys too, it's like, it's like part of the ritual, it seems like. Yeah, it's party. And I mean, there was a well, one, right? Whether yeah. you're a patsy or not. Yeah, and there was one girl. There were well, not one. Mul- there was multiple strippers there that ID'd I'd them, um, and you know they they ID'd the you know Strassmeyer McVeigh that they were there, and uh, 
McVeigh, it was McVeigh, yeah, it was McVeigh, uh, that said to one of them, uh, which this, this is actually can be found in a few different places. There's video footage of it. I you know, showed it on my show because uh, they found it from a, you know, a dressing room footage from the strip club of the strippers talking about it. And one of the strippers was talking to the other one that this one guy said to me that on April 19th, you, you'll remember my name for the rest of your life. And that was like kind of like the key point, obviously calling out the day that it was happening before it happened. She was just kind of laughing about it about what a goofball saying this. This was before the bombing, obviously. And that then later, feels like the kind of that almost feels like an MK Ultra. Make sure you tell people on April 19, you know, like make sure your name's out there. Yeah, maybe. But although one of the strippers, Sean T. Ferens, ended up dead. Uh, it was reported as a uh, as a suicide. There were some sources that said there was some sort of bloody handprint there. I don't know how legit that is. Uh, either way, it was super convenient. It was she Tara died. handprint. Yes. <laughs> either way, it's super convenient. She died. So I don't know. Maybe it could have been completely legit because it was uh, attributed to a drug overdose. Did I say suicide earlier? Drug overdose. But I mean, it could have been a drug OD suicide. But uh, you know, so I don't know. Strippers, let's be real. I don't know. They're pro- they they could have totally been heroin. I don't know. But it also could have been the feds offering her because she was talking too much. I have no idea. Uh, you know, there are a lot of weird deaths surrounding this once you start digging in, and some of them you can kind of explain away. But it also is like. When you get this many bodies, it's kind of like, oh, I don't know. I'm not going to just, you know, take everyone for granted. You that, know? That's a, often a hallmark of these events, too. Uh, is, whether it's JFK, probably one of the original, like, conspiracies or, you know, anything else. If you, when you really start honing in on it, it's not just the event itself that seems weird, but then you find all these people related to it, and you can just follow different sort of rabbit trails. It's, it's almost uh, like a little star, a little uh, the spraying out of the main event are all these little side events that that all, even, even if you can't figure out every single one, they all tell you, okay, 40 weird things surrounding one event tells you something weird is, is going on here. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess that probably makes a good transition if we're talking about bodies that dropped mm-hmm. and uh, we probably move on to Kenneth uh, yep. to kind of, uh, that'll probably be the good place to go next. Um, Kenneth was, uh, second crap, I'm trying to bring up my notes on it real quick. Uh, so I don't fuck up anybody. But yeah, Kenneth was a, uh, was a dude who, you know, did a little bit of time in the military, uh, got out. This is around the Vietnam war time. Uh, when he got out, he got, came, came out with a, uh, heroin addiction and to fund his addiction, he robbed a couple banks, got busted in, uh, one of them, uh, did his time, uh, got out, uh, then he kind of got his life back together. He got married, had a kid, had a newborn. Um, and the thing with him is he he was on parole when he got out. Uh, one of the conditions of his parole was that he couldn't drink. And I guess he made a big stink about that. And he was kind of like, hey, I'm going to drink. Uh, he had his brother, Jesse Trandu, who was a lawyer. He got to help him out with a lot of this. And they, he tried to go the legal route to get it so that he you know, could still drink and still you know, be on parole because he pretty much was like, yeah, I'm not going to obey that. So if we could find a way to <laughs> waive that, it'd be cool. I'm good with everything else, but yeah, yeah, drinking. Exactly. All right. <laughs> so they threw it out. Well, no, they didn't throw it out. And he then was like, okay, well, I'm just going to stop showing up because you're going to test my piss. It's going to have alcohol in it, and I'm not going to drop drinking alcohol. So come get me if you want. And they just never kind of got and get him. Never kind of came and got him. I said that word. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, then at one point when he was crossing the Mexican border, um, he, you know, he had a, his wife was Mexican, so he had family there. So I'd, I'd presume they were probably visiting family or something along those lines. Uh, and at that point, you know, crossing the border, I guess that's when they flagged him and they go, oh, geez, this is a guy who's, you know, skipped out on parole. 
Um, and so then they end up, you know, taking him in. Uh, they, you know, he ends up, you know, in a, uh, I also do want to remind people, this is happening around the time of the John Doe two, uh, hunt, the big hunt for John Doe two. And there, you know, he kind of fit the description on multiple levels. Uh, this Kenneth guy, um, he was suspected to have, uh, John Doe two was suspected to have fled to Mexico. Um, you know, cause you know, obviously I would assume they probably presumed trying to get the hell out of the country after doing something like that. It was, they presumed he either fled to Mexico or Canada. Uh, Kenneth had a very similar build. He was kind of a stocky fella. Um, you know, cause, uh, John Doe too was described as being, uh, somewhere in the range of like five, seven, five, ten ish kind of stocky. He was, you know, noted multiple times as being a very thick neck kind of bullheaded guy, kind of that ethnically ambiguous. So either like a white guy with darker skin or like a light skinned, um, you know, dark guy or, or Hispanic or something like that. Uh, and Kenneth was kind of like a, you know, dark, kind of like a dark skinned white guy, kind of got a lot of sun, obviously. Um, he also was driving a similar uh, pickup truck at the time to what John Doe 2 was expecting having. And the biggest thing was the forearm, or the tattoo on Kenneth's left forearm, which was a dragon, which, albeit it was a super generic 90s dragon tattoo. So, you know, uh, it, normally when people have the same exact tattoo, you'd be like, oh my God. But considering as, uh, you know, it was kind of like literally looked like 90s flash art uh, dragon, you know, sort of semi-Japanese dragon. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't really. Feel and like and was crazy. John Doe two described so clearly that they like were even pointing out a similar tattoo then? Uh, yes, they they had a pointed out a tattoo that was kind of what people had described. Uh, roughly, keep in mind these are composite. You know, between a bunch of different eyewitnesses. So you know, when we're saying someone looks like John Doe two, it's within reason because a lot of people have you know suspected all sorts of different people that kind of fit semi different types. Because when someone says, "Oh yeah, they're buff." I mean, I don't know. You could be talking about a 160 pound guy that's kind of le- right, that's right. got a good kind of lean, or you it could be, be talking Arnold about Schwarzenegger, a, guy. a guy that's yeah. slightly more muscular than you. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a range, and he seemed to kind of fit that. Um, he then ended up in Oklahoma. They transported him to Oklahoma to the Federal Transfer Center uh, to hold there while apparently they were figuring out what was going on with him. Uh, he then ended up, quote unquote, committing suicide, <laughs> just like Iki. Um, he was found, hang- or according to the the, uh, the prison, he was found hanging from a bed sheet. Uh, but they, when the, the family received the body back, it had extensive cuts, bruises, burns all over him. Um, there were also two other inmates that, that said they heard sounds that sounded like torture, like screams, stuff like that. Those two individuals died before they could testify in court uh, because they had also they both had agreed to to uh, J- uh, Jesse trying to do who was Kenneth's brother the, those trails that just come off. Yep, and uh, yep, those two. One of them they they uh, they chalked up as a suicide. He was found hanging as well. Another one they called a drug overdose. Once again, they could have been a suicide. Could have been a drug overdose. It's just when it adds up, it's like I know it's worth noting. Uh, the, and there was another individual, there was a videographer who was a videographer they used that was like the expert on the, uh, Rodney King case, like the legal expert for like videographer type reasons. Um, they, the FBI contacted him, uh, to look through their, uh, kind of like their video system that they use or like surveillance video system, uh, to ask him essentially because key point, the video footage disappeared from that night. Because uh, he was in a uh, high security part of the prison. Another another staple of a lot of this stuff is disappearing footage. Yeah, and I don't know if I mentioned he wasn't before this. He was in a high security part of the prison, which is also kind of weird. This guy was a model prisoner. Why was he in a you know in the in the high security part? Uh, I don't know. But this uh, this videographer I was telling you about. 
they came to the FBI, came to him, asked to get his expert analysis on the, you know, if there was any way uh, with this this footage, you know, they brought him the equipment, whatever the hell they used, uh, if there was any way that this could have been anything other than it being like manually removed. Uh, and he said, no, it would have, it, the, the, after looking at it, his expert opinion was that it was, nope, this was, this was, uh, had to have been done manually. Someone had to remove the video or whatever method they used to get rid of it. Someone had to physically do, do it. It wasn't just some anomaly. Uh, and the, this, when the FBI asked him to do this, they made it very clear they didn't want to written report. They only want an oral report. Uh, and then after that, they were kind of like, okay, thank you for the time. Don't talk to anybody about this and kind of disappeared. Uh, he later came to Jesse Trinidu, told him this story and said, Hey, I'd be willing to testify because this doesn't really sit right with me. He died. Oh, <laughs> uh, so yes, that's, uh, so I think that's what three people plus, uh, plus maybe uh, a stripper or two. Yeah. Plus a stripper than Ken. Uh, uh, now here's another, um, a lot of people assume that maybe that he had mis- that he had been mistaken for this individual named Richard Lee Guthrie, which is another mm-hmm. character who plays into a lot of these different people, kind of you know in the group of like the Strassmeyer that I was telling you about earlier, kind of in that like it, those like those Elohim City type people. Uh, he was kind of in that group of people, Richard Lee Guthrie. Um, uh, he uh, was already in prison around this time. Uh, this guy commit uh, committed suicide as well, and he was on record saying that he was going to. Uh, he was going to uh, uh, like essentially work with the authorities and the press and stuff, and he was going to essentially blow the the lid open on the Oklahoma City case, Oklahoma City bombing case. And he seven. died. Yeah, and uh, it was actually McVeigh himself, according to Jesse Trendu, who contacted him uh, through what means I don't know, because this was at a time when McVeigh was still alive and in prison. Uh, he contacted Jesse to tell him that he believed the FBI mistook him for Richard Lee Guthrie, uh, which. Uh, you know, like I said, many people believe it was John Doe too. Uh, I mean, whether he actually was or John Doe too or not, being as his role in the case, I think that they were probably looking for him regardless of whether he was John Doe too or not. Uh, so just because, like I said, a lot of people That's believe what that. I, so I always try to wrap my head around with the the trend to do is is why were they torturing him, trying to get information out of him of some kind, thinking he actually was this Guthrie, and then there's like maybe multiple sides working against each other in, in some way. That that's the one part I'm always like, so what so why would they torture him even if he was him? Yeah. yeah, with him that is weird, and uh, I've talked to my uh, uh, you know my subject matter expert Richard Booth on this, and you know he brings up the point, and I think it's an important point for especially a lot of us conspiracy guys to keep in mind that none of these agencies operate as a monolith. Mm-hmm. So I know a lot of times you have this tendency to be like, oh yeah, this agency wants this, and this agency wants that, and then we kind of like give it this own like idea of like, oh yeah, this entity is moving in unison like this, and it's like no. That's not how it works. So, like, there's various um, agencies, but then there's various people and units with their own motivations within those agencies, too. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, a lot of these like shadowy figures that a lot of us conspiracy people will talk about, be like, oh, this guy, that guy. Those are probably like of maybe a few dozen out of these these uh, these groups, and probably this information is probably compartmentalized so much that really only them and maybe a few other dozen people know this stuff, anyways. So, I think a lot of the the like that say with like the FBI, a lot of these probably are just your normal on the beat guys that are normal just, you know, on the beat the guys that would torture the suspect doing normal <laughs> normal yeah, suspect I mean, torturing, <laughs> and then they're like, oh. Oh shit, that's yeah. not even that guy. And, and even then there's levels to that. So they could be like kind of, you know, willing to do stuff like that, but still not be at that level uh, there where they're completely in the know. Or they could have just been looking for Richard Lee Guthrie and or looking for someone to fit that role, knowing that they need to clean up. I don't know. I mean, it they is, could be uh, 
patriotic Americans and quote, that just took it too far with a guy who they really thought was killed all these people. Yes, exactly. So I, I don't know. There is a, I mean, when you, when you get into like the John Doe twos and stuff, that would probably be a, a conversation I need to have, uh, more with, uh, uh, Richard, uh, Richard Booth about that. Cause yeah, there, I think there is, it always does kind of confuse me too. Cause I really don't think Richard Lee Guthrie is John Doe two. And I actually think he, he probably, I would assume he probably had a similar build to, uh, Kenneth, uh, but I, I, I don't know. I do, I do have the feeling it was probably a little bit of a darker fella and he probably was some sort of ethnic ambiguous from the reports I've seen, but I don't know. Uh, I'm just nitpicking. It's, it's hard to tell who's what, uh, but yes, I, I don't think they operate as a monolith. Um, and this was also after the period of time when the official story was there was no John Doe two, but then they would also make conflicting reports to the uh, media that they were still looking into it while saying it was made up. It, it was a weird, they were in a weird spot at that point, the uh, FBI with their official narrative. We've ruled so, it out, but we're going to leave yeah. it open-ended in case we decide <laughs> to change our story later. Yeah. So they could have, there could have been people that were in the know for whatever reason, had bad information or, or maybe they were, I don't know, they could have gone after, or it could have been people trying to continue to look into this after they had been told not to look into it anymore. It's really hard to tell, uh, you know, when, cause there's differing levels of information and who has what, uh, information can get skewed along the way. Uh, you know, everyone's operating on whatever information they have and that's that. All right, well, Jose, we're, we'll wrap up in a minute and, you know, maybe we'll dig a little more into this in the smoke filled room, but, uh, really, I mean, like you said earlier, you've done, you just yourself have done like 15 hours of podcasts on this, but then each of these people you've brought on and talked to have their own, you know, treasure trove of, of, so, uh, we've only really scratched the surface on this topic, but, uh, it is an important one, I think is, as you, as you kind of said at the top to bring it full circle, it really is one that can crack open the the sort of the, the pathway, the framework for what a lot of similar events can look like. And I think when it comes to identifying uh, whatever you want to call it, whether you want to call it a false flag or I think the, the most generous uh, thing, like you said, might be to say it was just a really, really corrupt situation. But really, I think we can both agree at minimum, this is they let they let this occur in some way, shape or form, um, most likely. But um, either way. The point is you can spot all of these little signs surrounding the event. And once you learn to see that, which you can see so much of it with the Oklahoma City bombing, you can start to see it in, in other places too. That kind of helps you identify this type of event, which I think is, is pretty useful. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so one, one thing I want to ask you though, before we wrap up, just to get your, your brief thoughts on is, you know, a lot of people might be hearing, okay, this definitely sounds like there's some shenanigans here. Maybe this is something I haven't looked into, but then they're going to pause and think, but Why? Like, why would uh, any element of federal, and again, there's, like you said, there's not moving in a monolith. So there might be one agency or one thing with one motivation that goes against another. Um, but at the end of the day, why would, why would anyone do this? Why would any government agency, allow, whatever do this might mean, and that's open to interpretation again, it might just mean cover it up after the fact. It might just mean allow it to happen. It might mean, you know, as far as doing the wires and making it all happen, who knows? But either way, why would something be amiss, I guess? Is, what are some possible motivations? Uh, I guess I'll answer that two different ways because uh, I'll answer that on one hand on the let it happen slash or you know somehow we drop the ball type thing. Uh, you know wh Why would this happen? Uh, because all the incentives are in place for that to happen uh, because we have these agencies that are allowed to and it's pretty much common practice for them to infiltrate groups to get into them. Now, at what point 
Uh, what's the sliding scale between between infiltrate and just be there to take in, uh, take on uh, you know information or or what what where does that become uh, you know becoming a provocateur or legitimizing the group? Like for example, there it's become quite known that a lot of them start these groups uh, and then kind of put them together. So like let's say me and you made a club that was a I hate women club and but it was like it was totally like it. just an op and we're just we're no we really like women but we're gonna get like me and uh, we're gonna get me you and like five other of our buddies to be in the I hate women club, even though we love women. And then, but then we're going to use that to point to the world. We'll get two other people who really do hate women and we'll point to the world. Like, look at this, look at this group of nine people and they hate women. Look how bad, look how bad, look how bad hating women is in our society. You know what I mean? When it's really like, okay, but like over half of you don't actually believe that and you just right. have skewed the Seven concept. of you are part of the thing and two of you are the dumbest people you could find that you convinced to join this dumb thing. Yes, exactly. So now, so the incentives are there and what happens, let's say that Oklahoma City bombing was some sort of op gone wrong. Let's say that the plan was to stop it in the nick of time and put this guy in jail and be like, look at us, we saved the day and we, you know, we did a bomb sting. Uh, we completely set this guy up, gave him the money, gave him the means, gave him Once everything. Once again, gave him real bombs as always seems yeah. to be the case again. <laughs> yeah, and he, he, and say they stopped it. Now what happens? They get a pat on the back and they're going to go, you know what? We, we should be, we should get some, uh, you know, look how great we did. You give us some perks, you know, we maybe give us more money, whatever. It just makes us look, makes them look better in general. Now what happens on the other hand? Then they go, well, we clearly don't have the resources to deal with this. Uh, if, you know, maybe if we were able to get this program or that program, obviously they Pass find their own this law sca- or that law yeah. might help. Yes. Yeah. So if anything, uh, you could almost make a case there's more of an incentive for them to screw up than there is for them to do well, because what do you really get other than an attaboy from when you do well? So, but at the very least, it kind of gives you less of an incentive to not fuck up, because it's like, meh, whatever, like, it, I don't know. So it leaves more open for those situations. But on the other extreme side, on the make it happen, why would they do that? Now, I think this requires not a myopic view, a, a, a honed-in view on specific things. People always have this tendency to go, uh, uh, okay, so let's say X event was completely put on by the government. Well, why would they do it? What happened? Were there any laws? Were there this? That? Like, they're looking for a direct action, direct result. Like, this thing happened, and then this law got put into effect. I don't think that that's how that is how that works. If you, especially if you look throughout history, and a lot of these things work. A lot of times, like when you look at things like Operation Gladio, things that actually went through. Uh, or things like, uh, um, or like uh, Operation Phoenix over in Vietnam, it is more of a big picture view. And like what generally happens when these large trauma of like large mass trauma events happen? What, how does the, the public react? How can we manipulate this? How does this benefit us? To whose arms they run to? You know, stuff like that. How, like th- this is how we maintain control. This is how, and, and yes, there also is the element of then we can get X, Y, and Z in, but it doesn't have to be we perform this action and then ta-da, we get the, uh, you know, whatever the, the 2023 act of getting rid of firearms. Like it's not just for this one (laughs) specific thing. It's for the general direction that they're trying to go, which is going to include, you know, whatever they can get away with along the way in the response. Yeah, yeah, I do think it's almost like this. It's when the collective consciousness. I actually just had the QAnon shaman. We kind of got on this topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a great show. show. I just watched it, yeah. 
Oh, and he, we were talking about it. it's kind of like it's kind of like when the collective consciousness reaches a certain level. That's when they poof, try to they, they hit it with that, and that drives you back into fear. drives you drives you into these trauma cycles that just kind of naturally infect the the collective psyche and the individual psyches for many people. And how does that act, like what who who benefits from this? Because it sure isn't us, you know. Maybe podcasters, you know, we have something yeah. to talk about. But <laughs> yeah, it gives me a lot of content. <laughs> yeah, well, Jose, I really do appreciate you coming on. And like I said a couple times now, uh, you we've only scratched, we've really tickled the scratch, the surface that you scratch. We're not even scratching yet. So there's so much more to dive into. So highly recommend, of course, check it out. No way, Jose, and going on uh, deep dives over there. And then, you know, take take these rabbit holes wherever they might lead you, uh, if you so dare. Before I let you go, feel free to plug away on uh, anything else you got going on. Of course, like you mentioned, we got Tinfoil Hat coming up. I'm sure by the time this releases, it'll be either out or almost out or something like that. Yeah, uh, like you said, the Tinfoil Hat. So, you know, definitely check that out. I have the No Way Jose Show. If I'm YouTube, all major odd pockets Odyssey as well. Follow me on Twitter at Tower Gang Jose. The only real big thing I have coming soon is I'm bringing the QAnon Shaman. I just had the QAnon Shaman on, so you can go check that out. But I'm also bringing him back on, and I'm doing one of my four Pony Boys uh, series episodes with him and Shane Cashman. So that'll wow. be a fun one. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you've listened to the QAnon Shaman talk before and you know who Shane Cashman is, It'll be fun. We'll get into weird, probably conspiracies for sure, because uh, that, that's uh, I think we'll, we'll end up. This being is like that. playing with action figures for you. It's like playing with podcast oh, yeah. action figures, just <laughs> toss them together and see what happens. You know, it's, it's literally as I was listening to him, just like you know what? I bet you'd vibe with Shane. I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna make it happen. <laughs> All right, well, I really look forward yeah. to that one, uh, Jose. Thanks so much for coming on my show. I'll see you over smoke filled room. All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jose Galison, a fellow Florida man. Always happy to support a fellow podcaster and a fellow Florida man. And uh, Jose's been killing it going out and talking about Oklahoma City. He says he's not an expert, but in my point of view, uh, you know, just like me, I'm probably not an expert in any specific area of libertarianism for those of you that followed me from the Lions Liberty days. But because I spent you know, nine years talking to every other expert in libertarianism, I had a pretty good overview of the entire situation and could pretty speak pretty damn confident, confidently on it. So I look at Jose as kind of like uh, the Mark Claire of the Oklahoma City bombing because he's interviewed so many different experts, uh, spent, like he said, over 15 hours uh, doing content on this specific topic. So I think he was the perfect person to come on and break it down with you. Be sure to check out his show, No Way Jose, as well as The Tower Gang. Always have a blast with those guys. That being said, we've got a good one for you next week. I'm not even going to spoil it. I'm just going to tell you it's going to be a good one. And until then, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night.